0: Welcome to the Highland Gospel Mission, a podcast to all nations. Each week, Pastor Keith will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message from Highland Southern Baptist Church to the rest of the world. If you have a Bible, we encourage you to read along and study the Word for deeper understanding. Now, here's Pastor Keith for this week's message. If you get your Bibles, open them up to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is one of the prison epistles, so the Apostle Paul is imprisoned at the time that he actually writes this letter. Um, I'll give you some background of some things we know historically that were going on at the time, how the church was actually being affected. To give you a little bit of a history about the church, though, how many of you know that every single one of us in the United States have been positively affected by the church in Philippi? The church in Philippi was the first church the Apostle Paul was commanded by Jesus on a second missionary journey, uh, his second missionary journey to go into Macedonia. Where's Macedonia? Europe. Philippi was the first church planted on European soil. We would have directly um, been affected by this the city was named after um, Philip of Macedonia, who just so happened to be Alexander the Great's dad. Around 42 BC, when it came, in, uh, it came under control of the Romans, the Romans basically at that point had a republic. Um, when they went into Macedonia, when the Romans went into Macedonia and took Macedonia... That was when Rome became an empire, and then they began to take other entire countries, and their empire, we know, expanded to at that time, the largest empire on the on earth. This particular letter is significant in the Apostle Paul. It's a fairly brand new church. All of the people who would have filled this church would have been new believers. Uh, this is kind of like Timothy, the same, you've heard me talk about Timothy a lot. Um, you know, Timothy, Timothy was about 16 years old when he was actually called into the ministry by Paul, was, was being sent to places with letters, was running errands for Paul at the age of 16 years old. Just imagine a few years down the road when this guy who has been in prison now um, several times, who has also had his life threatened by weather, life threatened by people, um, he's chased across the country because of the gospel that he proclaims, Um, this guy who has had his life threatened multiple times throughout his ministry looks at the 16-year-old boy and he goes, oh, by the way, when I'm gone, you're taking my place. If you were a kid, and I'm saying teenager, if you were a teenager, and some dude who had just been imprisoned five, six times because of what it is that he says somebody who is hated by the Jews, who is hated by the Romans, who is hated by everybody because he's basically a—he's—he's abandoned all of them to some extent. In reality, he abandoned none of them. But Paul's put in this place where um, after all of his imprisonments and everything, what, what's this brand-new church going through as a result of that? So I say it's like Timothy because of this. Paul goes through that region. He shares the gospel with people. People trust in Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior. He takes those individuals. He makes them an established church. Okay? They don't know a whole lot other than Christ and Him crucified. That's what the gospel was about. They're going to get to know the Apostle Paul a little bit, but right now, all that, all that the Apostle Paul is to them is a founder. Which means that he's, he's, they have attachments to him. They, they've fellowshiped. He's spent enough time around with them for them to grow um, relationship attachments to. So He'd been around long enough for that to happen. Now, now this church, not knowing everything that Paul had gone through his entire life, but then being established as a church, basically knowing nothing but Jesus and him crucified, they find out all of a sudden the apostle Paul's in prison. Not only is he in prison, but he's been in prison three or four times before. And he's imprisoned for saying what it was that he established your church under. How many different emotions do you think come out of the church at that point? Well, you got the people who, it's going to dawn on them if Paul can be imprisoned that many times for what he believes and what he says, we could be imprisoned since we're established based on that same foundation. So fear, without a doubt, right? How many of you guys know we got some tough guys in the church? Tough guys? Tough guys? The tough guys, are tough guys afraid? What do they want to do? What do the tough guys want to do? Well, it stormed the Roman Empire, right? I mean, this ain't right. We need to get a group of people together. We need to go over and show these Romans how we're going to do business. Tough guys, right? Then you get other people who are genuinely just concerned about the well-being of Paul. He's in prison. In this letter, it actually tells of one of the guys from this church. His name is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus walked to the Apostle Paul and delivered a letter and a gift from the church. Anybody want to guess how long, how far of a walk that was from Philippi to Rome? 600 miles one way. You think that guy loved Paul? Not only that, but how many of you guys have been on your way to work in the morning and you genuinely get to feeling just totally horribly sick and you turn around and go back home? Epaphroditus? He became deathly ill on this trip to Paul. He didn't stop. 600 miles. I can guarantee you that there was a lot going on for a man to justify a 600-mile walk. And with all these things that were going on in individuals' minds, the Apostle Paul needed to address it. Because if they were worried about Paul, they completely missed the mark. If they're angry at the Romans, they completely miss the mark. If they're afraid, they have completely missed the mark. And in this particular letter, Paul helps focus them from where they're at to where they need to be. So take a look, um, at, uh, look at the way that Paul deals with them in, in this first verse, with, with these first verses. The way he deals with them, you can tell that they're a, a new church, and you can tell that he loves them. It says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, and to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel the, this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. And, and this is something I'm not sure that people, I'm not sure people grasp the concept of this. And I want you to hear me. Whether I'm seeing you for the first time today, or I've known you for 20 years, I love you. What this means is this. This is not just a building for people to come to once or twice a week. This is a church. Whether you choose to look at me this way, it's entirely up to you. But you are my family. And that family runs deeper than genetic blood. It runs as deep as the blood of Christ. Paul has an attachment to these people. He didn't know all of them that well. And he associated his attachment to them through their participation in the gospel. In other words, Paul's not coming down on them hard by telling them, shame on you for being afraid in this circumstance. Shame on you for being a bully in this circumstance. He's not slapping them around. He's approaching them by saying, look, I love you. And he's saying that because he wants the people to understand. This isn't a control issue. When I stand up here and preach, and I tell you this is what God would like to see out of us, it's not a control issue. It literally is the best thing for you and everybody you're around. This is why I keep pounding the whole rule thing. Man, church has become so structurally hard. You can't dance, you can't drink, you can't do anything without people presenting a list of rules to you and saying, shame on you. You better be face down at the pulpit on Sunday because God's going to reject your salvation. He loves you just the same. It doesn't matter whether you're afraid when you shouldn't be. It don't matter whether you're mad when you shouldn't be. He loves you in your fear. He loves you in your anger. He built this. He knows what we're capable of. What we feel is one thing. But I'll say it again, folks. Love's not a love's not an emotion. And I'm tired of hearing it. I just... Why are you getting divorced? I don't love them anymore. That's obvious, but why are you getting divorced? And they'll look at me sideways. Well, what do you mean that's obvious? Love is a verb. Love is not what you feel. Love is what you do. If you want to feel, then you do. That's the way it works. The emotion of love follows the action. That's the way it works. Love at first sight. I'm about to destroy your childhood. Doesn't exist. That's lust. That's what's called lust. When somebody sees something for the first time, it goes, Woo! That's lust. That's not love. Love is something that if we as a family, as a church family, are going to live in, then we need to live in it. And I'll promise you, it comes with every one of the complications of your own family. I guarantee it. If not worse. You think you come from a a fundamentally messed up family? Become a part of one that's a church. But we love each other in spite of each other. We hold each other accountable because we love each other. We teach each other because we want life to become more enjoyable for each other because we love each other. And there is nothing that hurts more than to pour yourself into the lives of individuals and them not to love you back nothing hurts more tell the people in this new Sunday school class you become a member of this church there are expectations i'm going to love you whether you want to be loved or not you're going to love the church family whether you want to love them or not we're going to be a part of this of this we're all going to be a part of this machine we're all going to, and there's a reason for it. I'll get to it here in a second. It's in this passage of Scripture. And it's what, what he's actually working towards. Let's just keep reading for a little bit. Verse 8, he says, For God is my witness. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So here's the way that it works. If our love for one another is genuine, then what we want that is better for one another is genuine. Now, I'm going to tell you, I can't stand up here and tell you what, what exactly that looks like for you. We're all on different, we're all traveling different roads. Even if we have a relationship with Jesus, we each have different experiences, we have different struggles, we have different complications, we have the same Christ. We can all come together when it comes to the solution of our problems, but we can't come together on our problems because all of our problems are different. I mean, you lose an arm and somebody else has a headache. What's the bigger deal to both of them? Depends on which one's lost the arm and which one has the headache, right? What does the guy who lost the arm have anything to do with the guy who has the headache? Nothing. So I I can't stand to hear people argue about things all the time. It's like it's eighth grade playground all over again. We as believers in Jesus Christ love each other and we love each other for a purpose intentionally. Let me ask you this. Do things at home run more smoothly when everybody in the house is getting along? Or do they run more smoothly when nobody in the house is getting along? This is what Paul's saying. we got to get things straightened out of here and things run smoothly. In order for us to do this, you all have got to have your head screwed on straight. So his instruction in the part of this is like, I want to see you become from the person that you are to the person that God wants you to see. I'm confident that he is going to finish that work in you. I'm confident that he's going to finish it. He's talking about the end result, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is the difference between being filled with the fruit of righteousness and actually being righteous? It's an interesting thing. You guys ever met role followers? The people who believe that they do have to follow all of those rules or God's going to be mad at them? Or he's going to hate them? I don't know, he's going to take their salvation for four? I don't know how it works. Um, in their mind, it's been concocted that way, though, where they just think that there's some kind of, a, some kind of a, a formula. And there's not. There's no formula. You want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus and gives praise and glory to God? It simply comes through You know when that God has that purpose and plan for your life. And us once in a while needing to just sit down, stop thinking, be still, and know that he's God. Let me ask you something. I'm not talking about your Bible study time, your prayer time. I'm talking about when's the last time that you got alone with God and just did nothing. No Bible in your hand. No prayers on your lips. Just sit alone with you and God. Seem weird? It gets weirder. Because you get to where you're sitting alone with God before you know what he's walking through Walmart with you. People are walking around looking for the little earpiece because you're talking to somebody, but there's nobody there. You don't realize what's happening before you start humming something. People are looking at you goofy before you realize you're humming Victory and Jesus walking down the aisle of Walmart. people look at me and they're like, what? why would you be a Christian? Christians don't get to have any fun. I'm like, you really are speaking completely out of ignorance. I've been a Christian for over 30 years now. Would I be a Christian for over 30 years if being a Christian wasn't fun? And I certainly wouldn't be telling other people to, hey, come over here and join in this not-so-fun bandwagon we got going on. I don't have to live by rules. Do I want to please the Lord? You bet I do. That means I'm not following rules because somebody gives them to me. I'm following rules because I know that that's what's best for me and what's best for the, the uh, purpose of the gospel. It's what's best for the people that are around me. I've always been confused by people who had a problem with the Bible and they'll pick it apart. It's like, what? okay, so the Bible's telling you to marry one time and keep that spouse. It's telling you don't cheat on anybody. It's telling you don't even think about other women. It's telling you to don't cheat ever at work don't steal. Don't lie. Can somebody tell me where the problem is with this? It's kind of like when they threw the fit about having the Ten Commandments taken down out of, uh, out of the federal building in Washington. Did you know they did that? Yeah. You know what their reason was? They took them down for fear that people may follow them. They weren't worried about people being good by following the Ten Commandments. They were worried about people being drawn to the Christian life through the Ten Commandments being presented. Because anybody who knows the Bible knows that the Bible does not give us the Ten Commandments so that we can follow them. It gives us the Ten Commandments to prove to us that we can't follow them. In other words, the Ten Commandments is what what gives us the ability to say, wow, I'm broken and I can't be fixed again. And then Jesus comes along and says, I can fix you. So as Paul's dealing with these people, these people are dealing with very real issues, and he's doing everything he can to try to reel them back in and to get them set with that, with that purpose that they had had before. Um, their cheese let off its cracker because they found out that Paul was in, in prison. Look at, look at verse 12. He says, now I, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the, in the, uh, the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, uh, let's go ahead and read the next verse. Let's get this because it goes in. with it. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking, uh, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So now Paul starts giving these guys the positives. He says, look, you may be afraid for me, you may be uh, worried about me, you may have all of these things going through you, but you don't understand the progression of the gospel is happening as a result of me being imprisoned. So these guys are all going, boo-hoo, Paul's in prison, and they're going through all of this emotion, and the apostle Paul goes, wait a minute, if I had not been imprisoned, I would not have been able to get the gospel to the people that I've gotten it to now. The Praetorian Guard, who is who do they work for? Huh? They work for the Emperor. That's the, that's the, this is the Emperor's core people who would have been the individuals who are over these prisons. Paul's saying he, he was able to get to the pra, Praetorian Guard. What's the chances of a Christian getting to a Praetorian Guard without Paul being imprisoned? Uh-uh. Not happening because they're isolated with the emperor. So Paul's saying, Look, I'm able to preach the gospel to people I would not have been able to otherwise. How many of you guys would have pulled that shiny little gem out of your circumstances if you were in prison? Most of us wouldn't. Most of us would be boohooing about our circumstances in prison. But here's the apostle Paul saying, Nothing better could have happened for the gospel than for me to be m- imprisoned. And then later when he said, there are some people talking about Jesus, and they're talking bad about him. There are other people that are talking good about Jesus. The point is, whether they're talking good or bad, they're talking about Jesus. <clears throat> I told this story. Some of you never heard it. Some of you probably heard it more than four or five times in 20 years. But I was a dispatcher for Bico Concrete Products for, uh, for about two years. And uh, when I worked for, how many of you guys are familiar with John Barra, J.H. Barra Construction Company? Uh, Beagle Concrete Products was his sister company. Okay. I had 11 drivers under me. And I would schedule these drivers. Uh, the tickets would be printed out in the morning. They would come in. I would hand them their tickets. They'd go out in the yard, load their truck. They'd come back in, uh, rip off their load ticket, and then get in their truck and take off to deliver deliver the load. One guy was a Christian, and I talked to him. I'd get, I'd get there about 5 o'clock in the morning, make sure I had everything ready when the drivers got there. Another guy was there. We spent about an hour talking about Jesus, about Christianity and church. And at the time, I was a youth pastor. There was an atheist driver there as well and this guy goes out and he tells this other guy that's an atheist he says hey um our new dispatcher and there's a christian so this guy comes in to drop his load ticket off leans over the counter and he says you'll never get me to talk about jesus and i just looked at him and said you lose He just walked in and talked about Jesus. This dude's an atheist. He didn't want to hear about Jesus. But through a conversation that happened 15 minutes earlier, this dude who is an atheist walks in, leans across the counter to a youth pastor and a deacon, and says, You will never get me to talk about that, Jesus. (sighs) You just did. Doors open. You see, we spend way too much time worrying about the results. We even take them personal. You walk up and knock on somebody's door, and they call you a few choice choice words and slam the door in your face. I guarantee you, because I did it. You walk away from the door feeling defeated, like somebody just ripped your soul out. You went up to offer them the most loving gift you could possibly offer them, and they treated you that way when you walked away, and above all of that, it was a failure. Was it? there's no such thing as a failure when it comes to Christianity. Even your failure is a victory. If you're a Christian, because you're going to learn more from your failures than you ever will from your successes. And Jesus knows how capable we are of all of this. That's why he gave us an endless supply of it. You kind of check it once in a while, make sure your grace bottle's not running empty. So Paul's saying, "Look, it doesn't matter whether people are talking bad about Jesus or talking good about Jesus, my presence in prison, what were the chances that everybody around that prison would be talking about Jesus if Paul wasn't in there? Just because we don't understand our circumstances don't mean that God's not in them. Do you hear me? It should be enough. For us to know that we serve a God who loves us and would never would never put us through anything unnecessarily. It should be enough. And that's isn't that what trust is? Isn't that what real trust is? I don't know about my circumstances, but Lord, I trust you. Come down with cancer. It takes a lot for somebody to say, Lord, I trust you. You lose a child. God forbid. How much strength does it take in faith for you to be able to say, Lord, I trust you. Paul wants the people in Philippi to be the people who say, Lord, I trust you. If he brought me to it, he'll bring me through. It's not the right way to to, to say it. If he brought me to it, stop, look around, figure out why he brought you there. Because he's doing something in the midst of your difficulties. He's doing something in the midst of your trouble. So this is all about perspective. This whole book is about perspective. Paul's in prison. And he's looking at things from the, from, the, uh, pr- from the perspective of God. And you get a church full of people who are new believers, so not criticizing them, but you get a church full of individuals who are looking at it from the other perspective. And which of the two are happier? The one who's actually going through the trouble is happier than the one who's worried about him going through the trouble. Look at verse 18, what then, only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn out from my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ being exalted in an individual's body. It literally means that Christ in us comes to the surface. It means when we sacrifice ourselves to God and we sacrifice ourselves to his service, if we're in the right place, we don't worry about what the consequences of that are. Our biggest problem is when we realize the consequences and then decide that the the cost is too steep. We have individuals all across the country who are leaving their churches, and they're leaving them because it's hopeless. When Paul said that I will not be put to shame in anything, But that with all boldness, boldness, will even now as always be exalted in my body. You get in trouble for something, you stop getting in trouble when you stop doing what you got in trouble for, right? Paul's entire life was built around, he was the type of guy who, he ran to trouble. I mean, this guy would, if you you trace him through his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, it's almost hilarious to read. He walks into a town, goes into the synagogue, tells the people about Jesus. They all get mad at him, drive him out of the town. He runs into the next town, being chased by this group of people, and he goes to the darkest warehouse that he can find in the property and hides himself. No, he doesn't. He gets run out of one, he gets run out of one synagogue for proclaiming the gospel, driven to the next town being chased, and then he runs straight into that synagogue and tells the gospel to them. And they all get mad. Now there's a twice the size of crowd chasing him, and he takes off to the next town, and he goes into the next town and thinks he needs to lay low for a while. No, he runs straight into the synagogue and tells people about Jesus. He is accumulating a horde of people who want him dead. And he still runs from synagogue to synagogue. So they decide it's best for him, potentially to save his life, we're going to send him on to Athens, okay? And we're going to make him wait for us. We'll, but Timothy and them are going, we'll take care of everything else, then we'll go over and meet him. And Paul, this is all in the plan. You can read the book of Acts. So Paul, going to try to preserve his life for a little bit longer in Athens, walks into Athens, and he sees statues for every known Roman god under the sun, he walks up to this one particular one, and it was the statue to the unknown God. Now, the Romans were so scared. They had to have a God for everything. That's why they were. they were pantheistic and polytheistic. In other words, God is nature, um, and God is many. Um, so you have a God of the sun, God of the moon, God of the wind, God of the stars, God of the river, God of the land. God for everything. Well, they were so superstitious and so afraid that if they forgot a god that he was going to smite them, that they, the last one they erected was, just in case we forgot one, the statue to the unknown god, the one that we're not aware of yet. So Paul, after being driven town to town to town, sent to Athens to keep himself safe for a little while, walks up to this statue, and he goes, Hey, can I have everybody's attention? Because you have a spot here. For the unknown God, and I am going to tell you who he is. He was not very good at doing things that kept him safe. And it was because the fullness of Christ showing itself in his body meant that anything he'd done for Jesus that had consequences, he served it up as a sacrifice for his Lord. It's the cost of doing business. You share the gospel with somebody, you might get chewed out. That's the cost of doing business. You go sharing a message that people don't think is very popular in today's culture, you might suffer some consequences. How many people in here have been in Facebook jail? I've been in four times. I'm a regular. I'm expecting me to have to go see, uh, what's he called? Can give me a regular guy. I got to check in constantly, make sure I'm not making mean posts on Facebook. Two of them though was from my sermons, I gotta be fair. And let's be honest, if Facebook was watching all my sermons, they'd probably ban them all. It'd just be, yeah. they'd shut the account down. If you are if you have a desire, I mean, Jesus, Jesus anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Do I get that right? Anyone who has a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus could be persecuted. Is that one right? Anyone with a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. That's why we're told, why are you surprised at the fiery ordeal among you? In other words, people wake up in the morning. You have chosen sides if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And just so you know, the side that you chose is not in control of this earth right now. Yeah, he can take control any anytime that he wants to, but for a time, he has made the prince and the power of the air of this world, he's allowed Satan to run free. And you'll notice Jesus, every time that he talks about it, he says, until until all things have been put under my feet, until my enemies have been made a footstool. In other words, Jesus is still in control, but right now, the way that the purpose and the plan works, the devil is, is, is free to roam. And he will hurt you. He'll hurt you by people that you love. He'll hurt you by people that you're close to. He will manipulate individuals to cause circumstances that can make life pretty miserable. How do you respond to that? Just no. You don't go to Walmart without or you don't go to McDonald's without accepting the cost. Right? So why would you be a Christian without accepting the cost? Now the thing is, either you can be one of these people in today's culture who run around there and call themselves Christians, who have absolutely no attributes for one. Or we can be individuals who the, the, the name Christian means something. Little Christ. That means whether we're dealing with our our spouses, our kids, our friends, the places we go, little Christ, that's who we're supposed to be. Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, but if I am to live on in the flesh, This will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Hey, let me ask you something. How many of you in here want to go to heaven? Come on, if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. Be proud. Be proud. How many of you want to go today? Uh, This is a real struggle. I mean, anybody who says that that's not a struggle is lying. I mean, am I looking forward to no longer having to deal with sinfulness and the fallen nature of man and some of these Dummies. I kid you not. Talking to Austin, are quite a bit, and in our two vocations, we run into pretty big idiots on both sides of the vocation. And I say that. I say that with love. Saying this, I once counseled a 12-year-old girl who was pimped out by her mom. Mom's an idiot. Sorry if that word offends you. I'm sorry. It's a very true application. Mom's an idiot. What happens if I'm gone? What if I wasn't here when that 12-year-old girl was, when that happened to her? I don't think I'm the solution to all the problems on the planet Earth, but I was there, and I was in the place where I was available to counsel this little girl, who's doing just fine, 22 years old now, married has a kid. Obviously a miracle. Because apparently she'd been doing it for two years. From 10 to 12. What if you were gone? What if you, with the circumstances in life right now were plucked out of the way? What if this church was plucked completely off of this property? This is a question I asked the other day. If you died today, would anybody outside of your family miss you? And I'm not talking about miss you emotionally. I'm talking about are we providing something in the lives of other people that once we are taking out of the way, it would be noticeable. This is a good judge. This is a good judge of character for a church. If you pulled a church out of a community, how much would it affect the community? There's some churches that wouldn't even affect them a bit. Most of them wouldn't even know it was gone. When I first got here, we had a sign at the bottom of the hill, and I had somebody pull in the driveway one day, and they said, "I've been driving by this place for 15 years, and we thought it burned down." And that was a wake-up call for me. At that point, I'm like, "You've been driving by this." church for 15 years and thought it burned down? Whose failure is that? That's ours. If they don't see our trailer in the in the parades, if they don't see flyers being handed out in places for vacation Bible school, if they don't see the invitations to Bates Creek Camp, if they don't have kids that are actually participating in those things, they have no idea we're even here. I used to say all the time, Highland's one of the best-kept secrets in Jefferson County. I've been to 26 of our Southern Baptist churches in this county, and I'm telling you, the character of the people that are made up here, and I can get you together with all the pastors right now. I guarantee they're jealous. Highland has always been a great church, but it's not perfect. It's made up of imperfect people. If we want to reach people for the gospel, we have to make sure we've got it all together up here. I feel for the last two years with the people who left, and most of which are filling callings in other churches, and people calling me and saying, what in the world's going on? Does it matter? In the big scheme of things, do you know what God tells me on a daily basis when I start worrying about Highlands attendance? The same thing he always tells me. You do you, and let me do me. You don't worry about the numbers of people who are in the church. You do what you're supposed to do. You tell your people to do what they're supposed to do, and I will take care of what I need to take care of. You don't like the sermon today? It's a very small thing to me. You like the sermon on a particular day? It's a very small thing to me. Why? Because your approval or disapproval doesn't matter. God gave me a message. I preached it. Guess what? I win. You walk up and knock on somebody's door and share the gospel with them, you win whether they trust in him or not. You're nice to somebody who's not nice to you, you've won. Period. Because winning isn't the result of anything, I'll tell you the key to winning. You just gotta get it drilled into your head that it's done. Everything's been won for us. Now we've just been asked to try to restore the relationship with God's people and him through the faithful, obedient proclamation of the gospel. That's all he's asked us to do. If you're here today, you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. I can't save you, but I promise you I'll take whatever time is necessary to answer any questions you have. As far as I'm concerned, there's no stupid questions. There's no dumb questions. The only dumb question I ever asked was the one that wasn't. Uh, a philosophy that my daddy believed and one that I held on to in my adulthood. If you're here today and you have not placed your trust in Christ, please get in touch with me. Whether you want to do it today at church, you want to call me on the phone, just don't put it off. Don't put it off. You'll you'll forget or you'll push it off, and Satan's always wanting to do that stuff. But if you're here today and you do have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to walk out of here encouraged more than anything else. Regardless of what's going on around us, we really have one clear responsibility in front of us, and it's just to be obedient and faithful to the best of our ability. And leave the rest of it up to God. So walk out of here with some peace today. But also walk out here with a very clear understanding that Jesus' desire is to save the lost. And for some odd reason, he chose me and you to be a part of it. That only happens when we as individuals have our heads screwed on straight. And we're seeing things from the correct perspective. thanks again for listening. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, discipleship, or if you have prayer requests, you can visit us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. Have a blessed week and go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Highland Gospel Mission was produced by Zach Link with preaching by Keith Barron. Music provided by Pixabay under Creative Commons.